Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome, hello and welcome to Oral Delight, show number 113. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. And welcome, yes, 113, the very final of Larry Santuru's Lord Dickens Declaration, Part 3. We have that today, which means, yes, get your cash out for the Spider-Robinson Fund, please. I'll give you a little heads up what's coming in today's show. Lots going on today. We have another fact article by Simon Hildebrand. Simon, if you remember, did, designed and built the sofa stream on the Android phone, the Google phone. Simon built that. But he's done a, a fact article on, on his day job, basically. So um, it's, I'm excited about that. So please have a listen to that. Then we have Rod Barnett with his film talk for the month. Then we have a little intro by larry santuru telling you what's gone before on lord dickens we have the final part like i say of lord dickens declaration then larry again larry will end the show a little kind of a little special outro of larry you know thanking everyone and saying good night so again i will not say good night at the end of the show i'll go through it and you know, introduce everyone but at the end i will leave that down to my good friend mr larry santuru so let's kick off with Simon and his day job. Simon, what do you get up to? The internet. A near infinite expanse of lolcats, rickrolling and Godwin's law in action. First developed in the US as a decentralised military network, the internet now provides vital information, entertainment and viruses to every corner of the planet. But the net is facing one of its biggest challenges yet, and I'm not talking about Lily Allen's next inflammatory rant. In fact, in a very real sense, the days of the net as we know it are numbered. The internet can be thought of as a lot like a post office, with messages bouncing from place to place based on unique addresses. In the postal system, these addresses include several chunks of information. Your house number, street name, postcode, stuff like that. Postal addresses are as complicated as they are to make sure every address is different, unique. On the net, we just use numbers. A single number, in fact, that you get assigned when you connect to the internet which is included in every request that you send out so that the response can be routed back to you. This number is called an IP address, IP standing for Internet Protocol. The Internet Protocol has evolved quite a bit over its lifetime, but most of the Internet currently uses IP version 4, or IPv4. IPv4 defines an IP address as a 32-bit number. You might have seen them in your browser, represented as four numbers, each between 0 and 255, separated with dots. Now, 32 bits might not sound like much. It's barely enough to store your initials in a computer's memory. But if you count every possible combination of bits, it yields 4,000 million unique addresses. For Americans, that's 4 billion. Sounds like plenty, right? Not so fast. 
Think about every device that wants to be uniquely addressed on the internet so that it can send and receive data. Your work PC, your home PC, your PDA, your phone, and that fancy new Wi-Fi-enabled MP3 player, your ADSL or cable modem. Even your electricity meter might soon be online if Google has their way. And all those data centers stuffed full of servers hosting your favorite FaceSpace or TwitBook service, all those systems uniquely addressable, all taking a bite out of that 32 bits of address space. Suddenly 4,000 million almost sounds a little on the small side. And unfortunately it is. As the popularity of the internet has skyrocketed, anyone responsible for handing out IP addresses, from your friendly local sysadmin to the biggest internet service providers, has had to employ stopgap measures to stretch the remaining address space as far as possible. Using network address translation, NAT for short, whole home networks can masquerade as a single device using a single IP address. Using the Dynamic Host Configuration Protocol, or DHCP, routers hand out temporary IP addresses only when requested and reclaim them later. And as things get more desperate, stranger sites are on the way. Early adopters of the internet, like IBM, have huge swathes of IP addresses stashed away and might finally be convinced to sell them off to the highest bidder. ISPs might start using NAT across their whole customer base, as is already happening in Russia, and stop handing out real IP addresses at all. And IP authorities are already discussing how aggressively they can reclaim unused ranges of IP addresses for recycling. But these tricks are only delaying the inevitable. We will run out of IPv4 addresses. Current estimates suggest this will happen in the next three years or so, depending on the rate at which the authorities responsible for distributing IP addresses carve up the remaining address space and share it out around the world. I work for one of these authorities, incidentally. That's my interest in this topic. So is there an alternative? Luckily, yes. It's called IPv6. The latest iteration of the Internet Protocol includes a lot of new features to make the Internet run more smoothly and securely. But most importantly, it spectacularly ups the available address space. How spectacularly? Well, IPv6 addresses are 128 bits long, four times longer than those of IPv4. But don't forget that each additional bit doubles the address space, leading to a number much bigger than most people can easily imagine. For instance, the size of the IPv6 address space is a number 39 digits long. Hard to visualize? Try this. It's estimated that there's 1.26 times 10 to the power of 34 atoms on the surface of the Earth. IPv6 can assign 10 addresses to every single one of them. Suffice to say, IPv6 represents not only more addresses than humans might possibly need, but also more addresses than any galaxy-wide alien civilization you care to imagine either. So when will we find ourselves using it? Actually, IPv6 is in use right now, whether people know it or not. IP authorities are already handing out IPv6 addresses, trying to encourage adoption and raise awareness. Google has taken adoption very seriously. As of March last year, Google Search has been reachable via IPv6 at ipv6.google.com. Industrial-scale network hardware from manufacturers like Cisco is already shipping with IPv6 support and has done for several years now. By comparison, though, individual countries seem to be slow responding. New Zealand recently appeared in the news as having decided not to take any direct action on the problem, and adoption in Sweden is reputed to be dangerously low. For governments and businesses alike, upgrading network hardware is an expensive and complicated process. And as is so often the case, IPv6 depletion is a problem that won't get serious attention until it already causes some serious problems. 
Here's the picture for those worried about their home and work machines. Microsoft Windows has shipped with IPv6 support since XP, and there's been IPv6 code in the Linux code base since 1996. Apple's OS X also includes support, despite complaints about the documentation. So as long as you've got a fairly modern operating system, you're covered. Same goes for personal networking gear like uh, modems and routers, although IPv6 support is often built into the software, not into the hardware, sometimes resulting in slower performance. Check the documentation for your hardware, just to be sure. So on your PC, your local network, your ISP's infrastructure, and in the biggest data centers around the world, IPv6 is slowly taking the place of IPv4. Will we have all the pieces in place in time? No one knows for sure. We have all the technology necessary right now, but uptake has been slow and awareness of the problem remains low. Don't forget to quiz your ISP and local MP about IPv6 adoption, because one thing's for sure, the next few years will be interesting. There you go, Simon. Thank you so much. Fascinating to be quite. I love all that kind of stuff. Simon, star, get another one in. <laughs> Think of something else to do. Thank you so much, Simon. Have a Merry Christmas. So next we have our regular spot from Rod Barnett with his film talk. Rod, how's that shiny new mic coming along? I hope you're using it. I hope you're treating it kindly. What have you got for her? Hello, everybody. As a longtime film fan and one who got into film in his teenage years, expressly through the avenue of studying certain directors until I ran out of their movies to watch, I have a fascination with looking at the body of work of a particular director and trying to trace certain themes, certain ideas, and the kind of stories they like to tell. Sometimes this works out. Sometimes this gives me some really interesting food for thought and the kind of things that certain people write books about. And sometimes it just makes me realize there are some directors that I may never like. Such is the case with Richard Kelly. Now, he's a big cult film director who made a big splash a few years ago with the film Donnie Darko. Now, Donnie Darko is the kind of film that I should have loved. It is very strange. It's oddly science fiction-y. It's got a time travel, time twisty story. It's got a creepy guy in a rabbit suit. It's got all kinds of things that would normally appeal to me. But unfortunately, even though I gave the film two tries, both in its theatrical edit and its director's cut, I just could not get into the film. I, I can see why some people like Donnie Darko. It's got elements that make me curious about it. Curious to watch it again maybe someday, and maybe it'll strike me better a third time. But it just didn't connect with me. It just did not hit me the way it seems to hit a lot of people who see it. I saw a lot of stuff tossed on the screen with, without a whole lot of serious thought put behind it. It just didn't work. His second film is a movie called Southland Tales. And if you've not seen it, please allow me to make sure that you never do by telling you that if you liked Donnie Darko and want to think well of Richard Kelly, don't see Southland Tales. It's gibberish. There's some interesting ideas in there. But man, you want to talk about not doing anything with them? Whoa. Avoid Southland Tales, people. Now, we're up to 2009 and Richard Kelly's third feature film called The Box. Now, I was very excited to see this movie mainly because it's based on a short story by Richard Matheson. Richard Matheson, if you don't know who he is, uh, spank yourself 
on the left or right wrist and rush out and buy a large collection of his short stories immediately because generally you'll find, cover to cover, a series of gems. Now, Mr. Matheson's story this is based on is called Button Button, and I'll have to admit, although I have read it, it has been years, and if I remember correctly, it was a pretty short story. The box takes Matheson's story and, uh, well, kind of really screws it up, honestly. But I'll get to that in a minute. Here's what the movie does with the story. It's about a couple. Uh, In 1976 in Richmond, Virginia, Norma and Arthur Lewis, a happily married couple with a young son of about 12 or 13, they, one morning, are awakened by a knock at the door. When they get downstairs, there is a box sitting there with a car pulling away. Inside the box is a wooden box with a big red button protected by a glass dome and locked with a key. Also with this was a note saying that a Mr. Steward will come by at 5 p.m. that same day for whatever reason. Well, the husband, Arthur, goes to work, and he works at NASA, where he works in optics, helping designing a camera on the Viking Mars probe. Now, he finds that because he failed a psych exam, he's been rejected from the astronaut program despite acing everything else and with glowing recommendations from the people that he works with. Norma goes to school on this very same day at her job as a teacher in an elite private school and learns that, unfortunately, the school is eliminating the cheaper tuition that is allowing them to send their son to this very nice school. Bad day all the way around, huh? So it is with these thoughts in mind that they welcome Mr. Stewart into the house, who explains to them their situation. He offers them $1 million if they press the button sealed inside the dome. The catch is that someone they do not know will die. Norma and Arthur contemplate whether they should be able to cope with someone's death on their hands, and after much discussion as to whether they should press the button and uh, also a little tinkering with the box, Arthur cracks it open with a screwdriver and finds that there's really actually nothing in the thing. Norma impulsively reaches forward and slaps the button down. So the choice is made. And, as anybody sitting in the audience, me included, would have to think, wow, man, would I have made that choice? Would that be what I had done? Given the opportunity, $1 million, guaranteed financial security for the rest of my life, especially 1976 dollars. you got to think about that. Nevertheless, this moral conundrum is settled with the slap of a button, and we're off to the races. Or at least, we're off to something a bit stranger. So the next day, Arlington returns, that is, Mr. Stewart returns, and presents Norman Arthur with the million bucks in a briefcase without asking whether they press the button or really anything. He informs the couple that whoever receives the offer next, they will surely not know them, Which, of course, implies that if the next people press the button, one of them, or maybe their son, might die. Now, at this point, the movie is a very interesting, if a little too measured and carefully done, film presenting you with a very nice mystery. Who is this Mr. Arlington Stewart offering million dollars to people to press that little red button in a wooden box with no mechanical anything inside it? 
and the idea that you might or might not make the choice to kill somebody else if you could reconcile it with your own moral code so that you would never have to worry about money ever again. The idea. What choice would you make? What would you decide? Which way would you jump? All fascinating questions and could have made a very fascinating film. But that is not the direction Mr. Kelly decides to go. Indeed, he takes it into a bizarre area that made me think that we were watching outtakes or just scribbled ideas that didn't get used in Donnie Darko or Southland Tales. The story darts off into a weird new direction, eventually coming up with an unusual conspiracy that still tries to tie itself into the original moral choice presented by the box itself. Usually this is where I would become more intrigued by the story, but this is where I just started to disconnect from it. The line between what Kelly wants to create and what Matheson's story is about, it's not totally different, but Kelly's weave the stories together strangely. They don't seem to mesh effectively. It doesn't complement the source material. that doesn't really add any layers. It really just adds a level of weirdness and tacks on a science fiction element that the original story didn't need to get across its point, and that the film, by coming up with it, seems to just kind of topple under the weight of. It's almost too much, but at the same time, it's also really, really thin, because the thoughts behind it aren't particularly deep. The original moral question, the, the conundrum presented to the couple, that's a great story. That's an interesting story. And eventually, in the third act, we come back to that, after a lot of stuff that I won't bother you with, because it's very strange, it's very weird, and truth to tell, it's kind of a waste of time. It really only confuses matters. It adds a level of weird that might be effective in different hands, but here it's too measured, too mannered, and too, I don't know, off-putting in a strange way. It just doesn't have the feel of something that will pull you toward the story. It doesn't make me want to know what happens next. It just kind of makes me wonder how much longer it's going to go on before they give me a point. The movie's not a total waste. There's some good things in it. Most importantly... The performances. James Marsden plays the husband, and he is really good in this. He's he's the best thing about the film. His performance is fantastic. Cameron Diaz, who can be, nah, kind of sloppy, is pretty darn good here, too, even doing a pretty good job with a slight southern accent, her character being from Virginia. And Frank Langella, playing the creepy, mannered, but very efficient Mr. Stewart, is very, very good. He adds a touch of class to the proceedings, and it's not just the cut of his finely tailored clothing that does so, nor is it the very odd choice to make half of his face burned off. Nice effect, very well done, think Two-Face and the Dark Knight, but ultimately really kind of pointless. I mean, even when you find out the backstory that explains why half of his face is burned off, it doesn't really add much to the story except to the weirdness aspect of it but i'm back to that again that's the, my complaint with the film weirdness for no real reason no good effect it didn't need the weirdness factor but that appears to be what richard kelly has to offer that's his shtick
I'm just not impressed with it. So, The Box. It's a strange film. A very poorly received film by the public in general. I don't think it made very much money, and it's probably not going to be anybody's favorite film anytime soon, but it's odd. It's strange. And I wonder, I just wonder, if Mr. Richard Kelly is ever going to make a film that I actually enjoy. Rod, thank you so much. So again, the reason why this whole show for the last, you know, this is like the third week, why we've been doing this, is purely for Spider and Jeannie Robinson. If you haven't donated, come on over to the Starship Sofa. There's a page there. We're doing great guns. We can do better. Do you know what I mean? Let's all just, £2.99 would be fantastic. More would be amazing. So please come over. I'm going to hand you over now to Larry. He's going to introduce the, the final part of the story. Then he's going to narrate the story. Then Larry's going to end out the show, which I think is amazing. So I would just like to say a good night from me. But please think about Spider and Jeannie Robinson over this time. If you haven't, you know, there's plenty of time still to donate. Christmas or December runs out, you know, as you know, 31st of December, that's plenty of time to come over and do the right thing. So I will speak to you next week on Christmas Eve, actually. There you go. So take care, everyone, and I'll leave you in the capable hands of Mr. Larry Santuro. Dickens' Declaration. Long ago, and somewhere in the world, a group of Neanderthal awake from the sleep of a winter's night. Something new, something not ever, has entered their cave. Fifty thousand years later, Gerald Philby, lesser master of literary history at King's University Salisbury, returns to the present year of the Autark 1902, a time when the humanities, literature, and the arts are the prime movers of civilization and commerce its life's blood. Science and technology here are mere servants, and Philby's trip has been stolen. He has traveled on the Beast, a giant computer built on Salisbury Plain, to the year 1839, gone to make an academic point that politician Charles Dickens made his declaration of love for Her Majesty the Queen for reasons other than affection. For Philby, this is a matter of great importance. Philby is airship to London to be disciplined by a committee of the commons. His transgression is riding without protection to the past, but his real offense is that he has breached academic discipline. Philby is reduced to a pilchard, an aid to the real powers at King's, the masters of literary history. Master Mary Mariah, Philby's rival and the woman who convinced him to make this voyage, has accompanied him to London. As the journey continues, it becomes increasingly obvious that things are not what they seem in this 1902, and that the times definitely are changing. Had they come by airship or by boat to London? Was Elizabeth Tudor a virgin or not? Was Edgar Poe, the president of that continent to the east, beloved or hated? 
"'And what is the name of that pub at the end of the dark lane?' Returning by rail through the iron corridor among the ever-outwardly spiraling rings of the beast, Philby and Mariah observe a troop of laborers working on a part of the great machine. The men and women struggle in the rain and mud, dwarfed by the machine and the solar collectors that provide the lightning fluid that moves the great computer. Insects, Master Mariah calls them, mud people. Philby is offended by her attitude, but... Why? He has not arisen from these laboring classes, or has he? At King's, life is dull. Philby, his working life spent in a metal box, supine, attached by virtual wires to time-slipping masters, recording their adventures, verifying their facts, their theses, is bored, bored beyond tedium. He takes to punting on the rivers of Salisbury, to riding out among the elements of the beast. After an afternoon's horseback ramble to the edges of the beast, Philby experiences another moment of dislocation such as he had had in London with Master Mariah. Suddenly she is with him. Suddenly it is night. The pub, again, is at the end of a long, dark street. They go there to have the drink he'd offered her before— in a sheltered alcove of the prospect of whatever it is now. Mary Mariah speaks of time, of change, of her belief that the time-traveling masters are altering the present, not by action in the past, but simply by observing it. Mariah shows Philby a notebook she had left during an unrecorded slip in the time of William of Ockham. The book is of personal things, moments between Philby and herself. It is also a brief record of their present. Mariah has left it in Occam's garden to keep it safe from the changes she believes are being worked on the present by the time-slipping masters of kings. There is no always, Philby, she tells him. Time then, time now, and time yet to be is an illusion. She tells Philby that she wants him as a partner, a partner to research the questions she's raised. And Philby? Philby is not sure. And now, the conclusion of Lord Dickens' Declaration. Lord Dickens's Declaration by Lawrence Santoro Part 3 Looking back, William of Ockham, maths man, engineer, builder of improbable but ultimately useful machines, poet, teacher, brewer of ales, healer, and father of literary history— Ockham himself often brooded upon the nature of his fellows. "'Man is the wolf of man,' he is reputed to have said, after watching a brace of students pile one upon each other in polite colloquy. He then considered deeper. "'Why does man the dog but sniff his fellows' arses, and not tear his fellows' throat? "'Why, well, you've not seen enough,' Will, his good wife is said to have said.' 
the rest is conjecture. One master has it that he replied, My dear, I meant to say, why does man not tear his fellows and masses vast in packs by thousands? Why should they? His good wife is said to have said. There's enough to go round. Yes, yes, he said, watching a line of ants carry their monstrous personal cargoes from his famous tree to their earthly lairs. Yes, I suppose, yet. Yet nothing, his wife says. Will, don't complicate things. If not stares a man to fight, well, why should he? A pretty face, perhaps, he offered to his most homely lady wife. She is said to have blushed, swatted Ockham, and said, "'Back working with the <laughs> ne'er finish aught. Another master held that William brooded for years upon the subject of why man gave up the very notion of the way of the skiffot and glow, ancient rites of armed combat where tribe threw itself upon tribe for reasons little understood in a world so bountiful.' Scaffold and Glau belonged to a time that had come and apparently passed, passed along with the other antique figures of gods, dreams as urges from the divine, and other quaintnesses that issued from the primitive. Occam's brooding on the gods is said to have been the reason that his difference engine was never fully realized, and why he is often called Venerabilius Inceptor, or the worthy beginner. Another master thought Ockham to be a secret worshipper, always keeping that madness quiet within him. Most, however, knew him for having been struck by a falling pear in his garden in the year of the Autark, 1348, and, from that, intuiting how the universe worked. Master Mariah nabbed his color. Three months had come and gone. Come, she said, drink with me. Now, he could scarcely deny her. She was, after all, she, and he, just Gerald. Jerry, she said over tea from far India, and within the barred light of the common calf, now is the time. Hmm? He stared at the bare walls, the banners of the houses. A few pictures might have helped, he thought. A bit of color. And those bars, those little windows, do they think will fly, escape, he closed his eyes against the dreary calf, its dreary occupants, his dreary— Did you feel that? she asked. And Philby's hand trailed in the water. His eyes were shut, yet he knew Mariah stood over him at the king's end of their punt. Their punt upon— He blinked. She it was that pulled the little black boat through light and shade— Ah, he said then. No, he said, but then he thought aloud. It was, it was a breeze, perhaps, an eddy. Or time passing, she thought. Then there was just the regular plop and push of the pole and the gentle yaw of their boat. I might have wagered that we were sitting, sitting in common calf. No, no, no. They had passed out from the rings of the beast, past the dome of the first particle. The eight great stacks exhaled long white breaths that ascended to the blue. They had passed even the steaming brick and iron beehives that contained the mass that made the heat that fixed the steam, that drove the turbines that powered the beast that ruled their lives. Overhead now were lean and willowy trees. 
The river had narrowed, and above small spiders spun webs from branch to branch, made halos of afternoon sun. The light, the day, was gladdening. The current freshened. <laughs> they rushed a bit. And there was a bump, a small bump, a rock in the stream, nothing more. He gripped the side of the punt and looked up at her. I am so pleased the Hibernians chose the first particle option and did not create that forest of metal things that were to have caught the sun, and— She stopped speaking. His eyes closed. No more bumps. There was only the warmth of the sun, the cool of the river round his hand, the lap of the water by his ears, and the gentle motion of the boat— "'You are not sleeping, Philby,' her voice above him sounded an irritation. "'Not.' He was here. He was with her. Silly thing to think, he thought, the obvious. But on such a day, why not? They had rented a horse, no, three-wheel steamer, and he had puttered out the cross-ring road to the edge of the beast, and yet— "'Do you remember the rail-trip, Gerald?' she said. No, he said, no, not specifically. He had railed, but not, he thought, with her. No, no, never. I thought not, and you do not recall, I take it, that the beast once was powered by— She paused again, providing another lovely moment of buzzing silence. No, he said. A forest of iron flowers, she finished. He heard the amusement in her voice. Iron flowers, iron stems, and bright silicone petals, all tended by a bevy of human insects, mudmen scurrying through darkness in all weathers, serving the power flowers, the rings of— Now he turned to look up at her. No, he said. He was irritated now, the reason he could not understand, but her sudden talk of things that never were of Bug men who laboured in mud was irritating, irritating in the extreme, to him a personal affront, perhaps. It seemed she had sniffed out his fetchings, held them up for ridicule in this, this bright and watery day. I need your help, Gerald, she said. Again, the tingle at his neck, the irritation. If we weren't in the middle of this river, he thought. I am sorry, Philby, she said. Philby. She said his name again and smiled. Her horrible, miserable, wretched, peaching mouth showed teeth. You know what it is to travel unencumbered, and I must know. He squinted into the bright day and at her silhouette. Well, why? he asked, then quickly added, Oh, well, there's nothing to it, really. Are you thinking, well, I'll help you, of course, of course I'll help. She smiled. Again, the awful smile. No, he was not subtle. You are so... what is the word? They now passed through a corridor of trees. Among the leaves on one side, a twitch of spider had spread fine and silver threads. By the hundreds, the threads flowed into the breeze, and with that, the tiny beasties let go their cling upon the branches and drifted across the river, above Philby and Mariah. "'The word for me is obvious, perhaps,' he said. Hm. "'Lovely,' she said, looking up. "'Oh, lovely.' "'Fossilaron,' he called out. "'Oh, gladdening light!' "'I put myself in your hands, Philby. "'Truly, I do.' "'He watched the spiders for a moment. 
What is it to travel untethered and unskinned? Tickles, a chill going, another returning. There is some disorientation, a feeling in the gut of, of, of dropping, a whirling of the senses, its eyes mostly, I guess, but, but in the years I'd reckon it to be. And, he searched for the word, and a joy, I think, yes, yes, something like a joy at knowing where and why you're going and the fullness of being there. She was not smiling. Uh, that may have been me upon my own personal, what did you say, hobby horse? Why, you thinking of going so? I may. I may have to, Philby. What, Lizzie's virginity? Bugger, Lizzie, Master Mary Maria said. Above, the little spiders were still flying. He never thought of how they returned. He did not remember, driving side by side with her. He never recalled a steaming triwheel, though that somehow seemed right, but later they were back at King's. What of Sarum Hill? Long before King's and the Beast, before the Sheep, before Lord Jesus Josephson, no one knows. The masters of the College of Literary History have not assayed the past of that unfertile, chalky land on which is built the beast and university, yet it has history. What is known is that men once began a great thing upon the plain. They labored to build. A machine no man or woman can say of a certainty what purpose would have been served by the thing. Begun, it was never fully finished. Nothing remained in historic times but the holes. They were large holes, holes for something, for stones, huge stones perhaps, or huts, or larger buildings, no one knows. Few care. A circle of holes was not unique. Rings of excavations are found the world round. Wherever there are people, people have made circles, sometimes filled them, mostly not. No lesser a light than Oakham commented. It is but a thought, he ventured, placing his eye upon the barren and holy lands and his staff in the ground. This is the toppiest part of a risen tide, shall we call it. These people began one thing and finished another, and whate'er they planned, our forebearers changed their minds. A circle of holes is but a circle, after all, and mayhap they found the circle to be enough. For Oakham that was sufficient upon the subject. It made sense, and, after all, Oakham was just a man. They built a calendar, some science boy said, many years later, somewhat to figure crops. When the sun rose, there they turned soil. When there, they collied it in. Oh, that's it. If they meant more, they never built it. One problem remained. With matters of grave significance and career advancement at stake, even a disciplined literary historian might be tempted to nudge the official recollections of his or her voyage past the limits of absolute objectivity required by the archives. So, while skins protected the traveller, there was nothing that protected the archives. From the loads of codswallop, as one archivist called it, that many a disappointed traveller brought back and tried to press into the historical record. 
Posterity was at stake. A second set of eyes, another trained mind, was deemed necessary to view the events of a selected past. But send two where one would do, doubling the mass to be calculated, balanced, shifted? Well, never! It took time, but means were found. Ultimately, the traveller was fitted with what was called an implicit connection to the temporal stage— to the beast, and to the present. The connection was not by plug and wire, of course not physical connection between past and present, was not possible. Contact was maintained as the beast balanced a shifting set of variables that matched the traveler's mass, destination, and other quanta with that of an assigned verifier at King's, a complicated process. Few understood it. "'certainly not the travellers in their verifiers, "'called pilchards, after the small, salty fish "'eaten from time to time by undergraduates. "'The task of the pilchard, while critical, "'was an effortless one. "'Even so, no one ever yearned from childhood on "'to grow to be a pilchard. "'The tinned fish were too close to the real power of kings, "'yet lacked any for themselves.' This certainly was the case with a pilchard that once had tasted the joy of untethered voyaging. She, the voyager, he, the pilchard, yet where is this, he wondered. Where are we? Shh, she said to his thought. Her voice was hollow in Philby's head. He lay in his tin can by the stage in King's. She went off to... Well, that was the question. Where she was, the sun was nearly gone. A darkening redness filled the horizon. Yet he had set the slip path for day, full day, and for another season, not this chill one. Stars burned hard and bright overhead. Where are we? Shh, she said again. "'She's always hushing,' he thought. "'You're always noisy,' the hollow hiss of her came to his head directly. "'So easy to forget the link the pilchards had with their voyagers. "'Deep shadows covered the path ahead as though the dark were crawling "'from beneath the trees and tall plants along the way. "'The flowers of this place were brown and bending, past their bloom,' The unseasonable chill he had noted was 6.1 degrees. His pilchard senses knew that much. Local time was 8.98. They walked a garden, a formal sort, but one not fiercely pruned and shaped, one of wandering paths, and we are not where you thought us to be, Philby, she said. There was no accusation. Have you fucked me again, he thought without saying, her laugh was a brook to his mind. <laughs> no, Gerald. She hadn't. He knew. He knew, of course, where they were. This is Oakham's garden. Just so. And there? She need not have whispered. Yet, of course, she did. There was Oakham. Oakham, dressed as Oakham is everywhere where Oakham is pictured, sat beneath his tree, his pear tree, as he is most often pictured. It is fall. He is waiting, or sleeping. A wind stirs. Philby feels the breeze. The breeze is light. 
He knows just how many kilometers per hour it blows. It is a low number, which he records. The boughs of the tree, the reed-tall weeds and dying flowers bend slightly. They make a dry rustle, leaves and seed pods. He, they, hear them. The smaller branches of the tree clatter one against the other. She, they, look up. A pear falls. It drops from branch to branch, bounding here, there. Then, on its lowest, it caroms and strikes Will Ockham's head. He wakes. The pear falls to his lap and rolls off his right thigh. He looks at the tree, then down. He picks up the pear... He gazes at the last of the sun's color through his tree's overhanging branches. He bounces the pear in his hand as though to juggle this one factual item with the glory of the sunset. He looks to the sunset, then to the pear. He bites the pear, then rises to leave. She, they, watch as he walks. Ockham finishes the pair before he enters his warm-seeming, comfortable-appearing home. His wife waits at the door, a tankard in hand for him. He turns. He tosses the pear core back toward the tree. It strikes the weedy ground near their feet. The world is dark. They can see. They see the spot by the trunk near where Ockham's buttocks had been. This is the place toward which this entire accidental voyage has been leaning, Philby realizes now. She reaches down and carefully parts a tuffet. Amid the grass and beetles of Ockham's pear tree roots is... Nothing, she says aloud. Her voice says near a screech as Philby has heard from Master Mary Mariah. She paws the earth. She turns a circle, then another. Where? she calls. He smiles. She feels his smile. A filth on you, Philby. It is not here. It was. Now it is not. Ah, well, I have espied you to for this, the voice came from behind. They turn quickly. As she turns, Philby hears the creak of the skin's joints, feels the exact pressure on the ankle, the neck connection, all parts of their body. Mariah does not, nor does Oakham. Or shall I say, I have cut the you to visit here to for whate'er you be, blithe the beast of the nicht? What might that be? Some penny like cut person, for whate'er you are, you be a fairly wonderment sure. He approaches, he reaches, she steps back, almost falls, a vertiginous reel takes Philby. They regain balance. Ockham does not touch. I'm, I taste your existence rather than senses your presence, creature. If creature you be, <laughs> if not, I've not the word for what air you hicked. Some it like wake dead. There were warden for what a creature might be who lingers after life has left him. He stops. His face is red and shadow-dark, Philby sees. They see. He is no more than a meter away, a small man, lean but round of gut, bald. Philby's senses gather in the night, the garden, the rotted pears upon the ground, the ale of Ockham's breath. Or are you a thing, not yet born?' 
The great man's lip turns in a smile. Ah, he likes that notion, Philby knows. Something not yet, yet there. There is something mathematical in that. Philby knows this, but could never understand it. Ockham would. Aye, creature, I learn there be numbering for that. That something yet to be, yet here, and nother. He slips his hand from his voluminous sleeve and holds in it a small book, a book Philby has seen or will see. This mayhap belongs to some that, that is here, nother, but has nay yet been. Hmm? <laughs> he let the thought hang. Aye, he asked. Then Master Mariah did a thing Philby had not expected. Suddenly, night itself filled him. Philby's senses struck him with an intimacy and intensity he had not felt in— Well, there was a time when he'd felt these pointed touches from the world, but an outrush of air blew past their face as she removed the skin's head. He felt less widely, perhaps, but deeper— what he did hear, scent, taste, feel of the night, was potent beyond a pilchard's knowing. Ockham's eyes widened. He sees, no doubt, the head, the dark tumble of Master Mary Mariah's hair. It is afloat above the tangled weeds, the dying flowers, at the root of his pear tree. Ah, he said, <laughs> such lovely death you are too. Are you a death, then? Mine? Some thin, pale and gain, huh? I think not, she said. I think not I am death. I think I am an evening and a day yet to be. Ah, he said, again, moved closer. She moved back. Philby, you are correct, she gasped, experiencing at the unmasking the fullness of Oakham's time. The past is best unskinned. Past, he said. Past, long past. Oh, your past, she said. If I told you what you were, why then you might... Uh... She sought the word. Disaccommodate, Philby whispered in her head. Destroy the future where I live. Aha! I, I wield such might, he said. <laughs> he was sly with it. I, I do not know, she said. Ah, and would that be grim, he said simply. She took a moment. Grim. Destroy the future where I live. Ha. Huh. Well. I do not know. She and Philby said at once together. Is there more of thee? Oakham said. He wet his lips as he did. There is some... Philby to you, I cannot. Uh, his eyes dropped to where her female parts would be. <laughs> the old goat, Philby whispered. Mm, there is much more, she said, but not for now, and not for you, William, who was. I am here to learn more about my own time, by virtue of this, eh? Oakham held a small, dark thing in his hand. Without the helmet, Philby could not increase the sensitivity of his pilchard's eye, but he guessed. "'This, eh, this says more to me than contrary-wise,' Oakham said. "'That's my book,' she said. 
I, I knew as much, as much as I wot of you. Whate'er you heighten my silly foot, or passed or yet to come, have you read it? Ah, whate'er I could, which were nicked anoof. Then you do not know my question. Ah, nay, nay, ah, but I could your answer make. What is it, missing from the human that has made our world what it is? <laughs> ah, the smile faded from him. Ockham's wife called from the warmth and the light behind them. He spoke a few words, loud enough for the woman. The small rectangle of brightness closed. Ah, well, what is missing? Summit man gave up. Oh, many years are gone. Ah, I'll not tell ye. For knowing it will, uh, that word, that word, uh, disaccommodate it will, disaccommodate the world, he sighed. Philby, she, saw him seem to sag, to fade. He is about to lie, Philby whispered in her head. There is not... Higher than man, you must believe that, not liquor, not larger, not of more import. Believe, but for a moment the stars above are more than brightness. He stopped. He reached out. His old hand touched Master Mary Maria's cheek. Ah, cold, sehr cold, but living. "'Living, yes,' she said. Uh, "'Hi, home. Get ye home,' he said. He offered the small leather book. She took it. Philby felt her take it, and the thing vanished. Ockham's eyes grew round and white for but a moment. Uh, "'Magic,' he said. Nombrin vast, such they appear as simple magics, eh? Eh, the very thing. She was about to speak. Philby knows what, but does not try to stop her. He, too, is curious. Before she speaks, Go, Ockham says, Pharaoh foreigners, I shall begin to find a kernel, a kernel of it e'en in me, belief, Lurks in us all, I reckon, of, of the old gods. I see and touch in ye, rank or ribbed, angel, devil, I know not, he stopped. No, ask you not what they are, these two. They are not for you, Pharaoh Farn. Go! He turns and is away quickly. For a moment the rectangle of brightness at the dark end of the garden opens, then closed, then she and Philby tingled and were gone. She touched her book. I think I must find a better place, don't you, Gerald? He said nothing. He hovered over rummed coffee and shaking hands. Her, as he noted, were steady. For my little book, she said, Ockham's time becomes, oh, what is the word? What's the thought, he asked. Too much used, too often travelled and touched, too, too polluted, he said. Ah, yes, 
and I, a master of literary history. She smiled and continued to page through her book. The light in the place was wretched, as always. Would that they had put a window or two in here, she said, squinting at the pages. Ah, he thought, she is not perfect. <laughs> her eyes, at least, they are not perfect, but of course he said nothing of that. They fear distractions, I suspect, he muttered to his calf. What? The master masters, no doubt, deemed windows here where colloquies are frequent to be too distracting. This room, after all, its height above the plain would, would give upon a view that would be, well, he took a breath. Glorious it would be if there were a view. <laughs> well, thus no windows. She was back to her book. Ah, she said. "'Tell me, Philby, what do you think of Dickens?' "'He peered through calf-steam at her. "'Hm, Dickens,' he said. "'Interesting fellow, better politician than writer, "'better writer than man, yet he failed, I fear, at being all three. "'There, what do you think to that, huh?' "'Her smile was curious, but less subtle. "'A note came to his rooms.' Meet me, Gerald, at the stage, M.M. <laughs> the stage. Well, of course he would. It was his place, his station. He, the man of the stage, the stage manager from time to time. Of course he'd meet her at the stage, if to the stage she came, oh, a viler pile of awful and rankly putrid dung upon Master Mary Mariah, and would that he could provide the dung from his very own body." Her dress that day was sheer, tight, low-cut, to show her... She was lit by firelight. Her hair, her eyes were bright with it. Wait, she said quietly. I want simply to be close. To? To the stage. Philby waited. Beyond the room and the quiet crackle of the fire, the vibrations of the disc were building to potential. Someone was on the stage and about to slip. "'Who is voyaging?' he began. "'Hush!' she said. "'Again, hush!' he said. "'They waited. "'The floor, the walls, solid oak, "'and braced against the power of the beast, trembled. "'In the ingle-nook corner a genteel tinkle of snifters, "'one against the other, turned Philby's head for a moment. "'Her hand squeezed his arm, and... "'The bright iron walls and floor around them added to the chill he felt. Philby sensed, rather than heard the release, as the voyager slipped to some recent past, he thought, not a long travel. Experience had taught him. Had it been a run to a deeper, more distant time, the vibrations, the chill, would have been more intense. Good, the salon was solid-built, bright iron, alloys around, heated with pipes of hot— "'There,' she said. "'Now!' "'Come and sit with me, Philby. "'Let us speak of gods and fame.' Well, "'I'd rather not,' he said, but she drew him forth, "'and they repaired to the calf. "'Now why call me here to take me there, "'this dreary place than that one? "'Noise, flickering lamps, "'the worst commingling of disciplines found at kings, "'the men of numbers, of beakers and stenches, "'the men and women of literary history, and—' And they elbowed their way through to a table near a window. The view was thrilling, but—but but I'd rather not, he said. Sit, Philby, she said. If this was not to be she voyaging, he pilcheting, well, he sat. 
Her dress was long, full, her collar high, her bottom rounded full, so different than— Then what, he wondered. She wore a bow in her hair. Her hair was askew. She clutched a small, commonplace book. She seemed charged with a current of—of—he knew not— he had never seen her so. Have you ever thought to go, to ride the beast? Her eyelids flickered. She bowed her head for a moment. Well, she's embarrassed to say, he thought. Master Mary Maria hesitates to speak to a lesser. Uh, please, he said, be at ease, Master Maria. Unskinned, she blurted the word. Without protection? He, too, blurted, as embarrassed as she seemed. No skin, no pilchard link. No, nay, never. Why, why we don't know what would happen. To the body, would it? What might it be possible? He took pause. It might be possible. To a very recent past, perhaps a slip of a few moments, an hour or two. But, but imagine, she drew out the words, imagine hearing, seeing, smelling, touching, tasting that world. The words sounded tasty as she said them. It might be, he said, and she leaned close and whispered a flowered word or two in his ear. Would you do it? Try it once for me. Oh. "'I might could—' "'Ha!' she shouted. "'The ejaculation echoed above even the noise of butting discourse, colloquy, and crockery. "'She paged through her little book, opened it upon the table, and pointed hard. "'Read,' she said. "'He read. "'When he finished the first few lines, he thumbed through. "'The book contained more. "'It seemed to be—he could barely say what. "'History.' Of a recent world, a person named Philby, a master Mary Maria, of master Master Hillier, of trips that never were, of things that could not be. Fictionizing, he asked. You, he said. No, well, well, perhaps. Her eyes were alive with a flame sharp as the electric flux of the first particle. I have written this as it happened, as you and I lived it. I placed it, her eyes flickered, hesitated. I placed it at a time where no other traveller has gone, an undiscovered country from whose born only I have returned. Well, us. I left it where the intrusions of the history diggers of kings could not disaccommodate it. Now I bring it pristine to this, the present they have muddled, we have muddled. Philby, all of this, may I tell you? This has happened before. How many times? No, no, no. I shall tell you. No one knows. I have been here. She waved her arms at the room, the people, the night outside, the moon, the stars. With you, speaking thus, perhaps time without number. She gestured wildly, and so suddenly that the words seemed to emanate from all parts of her. I, some sort of me, have been with you, some version of you, here, elsewhere. We have done the same thing done now, this and other things. I convinced you to ride, yes, unskinned, to the past of your precious Dickens, there to see and hear his declaration of love. Dickens! he burst forth again. Love! 
He could not help himself. Dickens, a declaration of the man was not capable. Yes, 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 yes. My point, Gerald, is the physics men are right. See it here, she pointed to the book. He could make no sense of her jotted note. Ancient man gave up the... What is... Gods, he read with difficulty. What would the world have been like had he not... He looked up. What indeed, she said. Here. Her rude impatience was rare in Master Mariah. She scanned the page. Uh, Here. Who speaks for yesteryear? Literary historians, blah, blah, blah. Here. Her hand trembled as she read. Even in their darkling skins, invisible, yet they touch the past. Why, all our yesterdays may be but imagination, all compact, and today may be but dust in the wind. Less than dust, the present no more than a dream. She looked up. We are dreams, Gerald, you, I, Hillier, Kings, London, even the great Ockham. He has given me an answer without a question. Time past is time now, is time yet to be. And it is all, all imagination. If we can move within time, you see, then nothing exists, nothing truly does, and we are lost in a dream of what to call it. The dream of a sleeping God. The implications fill me. God, he said, for the first time since he'd known Master Mary Mariah, Philby smiled at her as she had so often smiled at him. I have her, he thought, clapping upon that one syllable among all the words that she had sounded. Don't I just... God, he said again, an old, odd word. "'Dog in a mirror, hmm? <laughs> "'Something beyond man, beyond... "'Yes, yes, yes, eyes in the sky, "'fate in the earth, gifts from the waters, "'foolish notions all, but don't you want to know? "'What would the world be like "'if man were not the full measure of the human? "'Oh, I have her, he thought. "'I truly do. "'Might we be better people? "'Might there be less reason for this, this?' "'She pointed to him, to herself, and back again. "'This, this between us, this contention. "'Would man not be less likely to work against his fellow "'if he believed, I mean truly believed, "'that there were something after? "'After. "'After life, another undiscovered country, "'something longer than life.' He smiled. All he had to do was to make a report. All his trials would be over. He'd have her down and done with. He'd have her. And then, and then, and then, and then, what, he thought. You say, we've had this conversation, you and I. We have, Philby, yes, and will again. Every time a voyager slips, the times, they are changed, they are changing. Every time, each time we start anew, from that moment, he stared out the window at the wide, dark plain of Salisbury. The rings of the beast were shadows, mounds beneath ploughed and fertile earth. He stared at her reflection, his, dark in the glass. Why... Are we, then, the same, you and I, here and thus, contenders always and ever? Yes, yes, and Hillier, and kings and the beast, we, they, remain static. Well, 
well, more or less. I have a feeling that the beast, too, changes while remaining essentially the same. But we, Philby, we, few, continue at odds, eternal enmity between us, through all the changes in time, unmoved movers, this duality. Why is it? Perhaps there is something in us. Do you think something that is always? She smiled again, that horrible smile. And who is the god the universe is dreaming? He stared at the plain of Salisbury from the toppiest part of Sarum Hill. Hmm. Inevitable, he said. Yes, she said. You, me, we, are, were, will be. Inevitable. Why? <laughs> Not a clue, she said. Excellent, Gerald, she said. Never done better. She was stripped and greased for skinning. He'd slicked her himself, and what a thing she was, her body, now bright and slippery. Flesh and bony bits, extras here and there, that elsewhere on any other would have been, well, well, perhaps a pleasure. You did that well, she modelled her nakedness in the looking-glass. Just so, he said, and wiped his hands. Why haven't I peached her, he thought. Why am I here now doing this? He knew, he knew, of course he did. It is what I always do, inevitably. The travel skin hung like a carcass to be bled. Bright iron and plastic, legs and veins of sheathed copper, segmented gauntlets, gilded, articulated conduits, wrapping limbs and thorax like muscles and veins, silicon breasts tipped with wide crystal teats, and the head, a thing of eyes, dead, of lips, mouth and nose, empty, no part of it alive, none with even the loathsome look. "'of Master Mary Maria. "'Will you skin me, Gerald?' "'She asks. "'His job. "'What else am I for?' he wondered. "'Piece by piece he dressed her in the fitted skin, "'and when finished she stood, "'gleaming, ready to ride. "'Strange,' she thought, strange. "'Skinned as she was, she... "'She was almost... "'He hesitated at the thought. "'Beautiful,' he said. She moved. What? Nothing. Light from the disc caught her. Her movements were precise, dare I say, perfect. She examined her fingers, hands, her arms. She looked in the glass, her neck arched just so, and again just so. She turned, lovely, not alive, no, certainly not that, no more alive than was the misery that was Master Mariah. But skin for the voyage, still unconnected, a creature of bright steel, and, and, and she was. Shall I plug you? Philby said. She turned. The flatness of her space, the deadness of her eyes said yes. And when she moved, she was a thing animated by light from the disk below and the shifting shadows that played across her body. He drew cables from the pilchard tin and connected his helmet to them. His senses, his entire body, crackled, her life winked on in him. He heard, he saw, with his body, felt the slickness of her, their body. The coolness of the skin she wore for them covered, shivered him, them, her, their breath, sighed in and out. He was she.
quite unnecessarily. She turned to him again. He saw himself, a man in a mask like hers, a man coarse-bodied, red-haired, thick. He stared at him. When the time comes, Philby, you'll be there, will you not? He nodded. He saw himself nod yet. And we shall go to the beginning, she said. They said. He watched himself. He stepped backward into the vertical tin, saw the tin tip, tilt. He, Philby, saw Philby in tin. Philby saw Philby supine and tethered to the beast, and the beast, he felt it, was counting her. The numbers ran their courses round and round. He felt them. Numbers? Well, well, he lacked of a better word. Not numbers, not as such. Probabilities. Diminishing necessities, more like. The beast was giving skin and wearer. Me, he thought. Me. And, and not me, he thought. Us. The wearer had a course of action, a set of implicit opportunities that, even as they watched, diminished to zero. The numbers reached zero. She vanished. He saw. The choice was so obvious as to be no choice at all. As its abilities expanded, ring on ring, the beastly thing, as Lord Dickens called the machine late in his shortened life, was pressed into ever-wide subservial use. These uses included general research, record-keeping, logistical advice, administrative oversight of governmental affairs, recommendations regarding commercial production and distribution, the control and spread of rumors, and countless other non-critical matters in the years around the change of the century, including, it might be noted, the distribution by undergraduates of increasingly scurrilous pornography, ironically, the beast, as well, provided the means by which these same students were increasingly able to avoid actual contact one with another. Punting, for example, became an almost extinct pastime. These routines used relatively little of the machine's capacity, however, as compared with the huge portion required to shift one literary historian from the present to a past of some academic concern. Thus, even after these ancillary tasks became a central pillar in the economic stability of the island, control of the thing remained firmly in the hands of the masters of kings. The choice, as mentioned, was obvious. In all events, matters dealt with by the masters were of consequence. Uh, Mistress Elizabeth's virginity was one example, Lord Dickens's declaration another. There were many more. Lord Dickens and his opponent were upon the field, two alone. Morning haze still lay on the river. Swirls of it rose, fell, and falling, writhed flat across the smooth surface. A tree loomed in the mist. The ground was uneven, and Dickens felt the wet grass swipe his trousers, his hands. Is this the thing, he wondered. What would it resolve? He and Collins, here together. One of them might die. Both could. Neither, perhaps. They were not what one might call good shots. Who has time to learn things, such things, he thought to the rising sun. Politics, literature, the Queen, 
Ah, well, he thought. He thought of that awful man across the western sea, Poe, still in power, still hated by all. He might have been a decent poet, Poe, had he not... Ready, Dickens? Ah, uh, Wilkie, he called. I don't suppose, he began. A bird rose in a sudden whir of feather and flesh. What was I thinking, Dickens thought. He barely saw his man through the haze. The Queen? No. No, it was Poe. <laughs> ah, well, he thought. Transliterated from the old language, Occam wrote this of the gods. Man has within him an urge. It is a joy at destruction, a love for the blood of his fellow man. He masks it as horror, as awe. Yet he rolls in it, covers himself with it. Give him a god to hang his goodness on. Think of what ill he might work upon the world. Give him a whiff of truths eternal. Imagine how man's gods might work that will. Of history, he wrote, History is naught but famous men, and men are bound to act however they are given to lead. Give a man a cause, and he'll do all he can to work out the inevitable. At that point, Ockham blotted the page. He crossed out that passage, but it remained readable. Below it, he wrote, History is naught but particles in motion. Some particles behave, most will not. But... There are only so many of them. He wrote these thoughts in the little book he found in the earth by the pear tree at the bottom of his garden, and gave it away to history some time later. The bump was typical but sharper. The end of the world, Philby asked, might be the beginning. Who can tell? Our end is in our beginning, Philby. Is that your plan? Hmm. The chill of transit seeped to him through her. How far were they? How far were they going? He didn't know. What would happen if... They'd passed Dickens's time, certainly. So, farewell, Dickens. Did you really love the young queen, or was it just <laughs> a ploy? The thought came back in the dark chill of his own skin. That's not me, thought he. Not I, the thought came back. You have a slippery grasp of the language, Philby, for a master of English, the thought added. Former master, he added. He felt the chuckle, their chuckle. And you, Mary Mariah, you have a streak of vicious a bump. He stopped thinking. The hiatus lasted just that bump in the stream. He felt it as he might a smooth rock in the Avon if he'd gone a-punting with the awful, miserable, brightly, luscious, no-good, wondrous, raven-head, spider-woman, Master Mariah. "'Am I all of that?' the thought came from her to him. Oh, "'I've done this a hundred times more, a thousand more,' he thought. "'An infinite number, Gerald,' she whispered." He heard. My thoughts not my own, he could nearly hear himself say. Let her hush me now. Hush, she said. <laughs> then she laughed. Once and future, master. 
The suit was close, the skin was chill, chill, now cold. How far now? Surely now they'd pass the Virgin Queen and Butcher Henry. Even Ockham was behind them, already in the past, future, which— I am persuaded that Elizabeth, among her many virtues, was not a virgin. The thought came back to him. Her voice. Of course, her voice. Though she was a queen, and her near war not with Vespuciland, no, no, with the rushes, and just a ploy. <laughs> Alas, then. Bump. That is you, is it not, horrible Mary? It is. I thought I heard myself, he thought. He felt her smile. He reached. What there was of him touched, touched her, her skin. There was flesh. There a memory of flesh, flesh that was, that will be, that, that is. The boat, that bright day. Do you remember? I, I remember Philby. I remember Philby and Mary in a boat. The gladdening light upon the Avon. Bump! She went on. I remember rain and trees and shade, spiders, and a rock. Is nothing sacred? he asked again. There's a chuckle in that thought, she said. I heard that, he said. Bump! A bad one. The chill deepened. How far? How long are gone were they? We are going to the end, Philby, our beginning, to see... A chance to dream. And back? Come, come closer, she said. And back? Well, you must decide, Philby. Can I? May you? No, can I? Oh, yes, try. Try, you must, must to be left. Choose, Philby. Philby chose. He found it easy. The letting go, the leap. He believed it, and he was taken. See, he said, when I want, I can be close. I thought you could. Well, he said, well, I didn't. But there, there she was. She was warmth. Ah, she said, that's better. Warmer, at least. Yes, he said. Yes. The lesser Newman was not pleased. Displaced by Hillier, the Maria creature in that red-haired lesser Filbert, was it? Well, very well. Carrying tea and papers, he and the other maths and physicians juggled, bumped, and gathered to a table on the border with the undergraduates. A few moments of shuffling, of grunts and adjustments, and they settled among the fuss and ruption all round. He felt old, lesser Newman did, and worse, redundant. The beast was nearly perfect. The routines, now digesting in its coils, its central missions, secondary applications, all, all in hand. What need now for maths and physics? The world was settled, complete. The beast continued to spread by bright steel and engineering. Well, well, very well. Newman sighed. Yesterday, he said, yesterday there were gods, and with the gods man contested man against man, and nations could have fought the world. War, good war, healthy war, war to cull the herd, hasten things, progress, the gods, the gods bred up by man in geologic terms just yesterday. 
Yesterday, said old Maxwell. He grabbed the word before the lesser Newman defined its terms. Confound Maxwell. Who knows of yesterday, he tottered on. Who speaks for yesteryear, the old Scot pointed. These literary historians, and old Max spat, fully spat, too, in Hillier's direction. Even in their darkling skins invisible, yet they touch the past. Why, all our yesterdays may be but imagination, all compact, and today may be but dust in the wind, less than dust the present, no more than a dream, gentles, and above. Hillier muttered something, rose his voice, shook a fist, and the world went quiet. Finally, the floor was theirs, and the lesser Newman began again. Yesterday, he began. The new cold was close ahead. He still squeezed between rock walls, and the walls were growing farther apart. He heard water running ahead. Ahead, a light wiggled. It had color. The light was the color of the sky when the big light was in it. Or it was the color of the wide, far water on a day with no wind. The color flickered. It made a sound, many sounds. The sounds almost spoke. Some of the others remained with him. Behind him, some he knew had gone back to the warmth of the cave and fur. He didn't attend them. His skin tickled now. Small things crawled on him. The many-legged things, he was certain of that. He held his arm to the light from ahead. The many legs must be there. There were none. Yet there were. The many legs that were not there climbed the hairs on his face, legs and arms. Behind... Others chattered. They swept at their faces, legs, and arms. Then the cold took the fire at the end of his branch. Cold took its breath, and the flame died. The heat sucked from it. He no longer needed that. The cave ahead was full of sky color, and the small, invisible things began to crackle on his skin, in his hair, down his man-parts. Then the space was open. Ahead was a pillar, a shaft of water. The water was hard like the top of the lake in cold time. The hard water rose from the bottom of the cave. It spread to the top. At the top it turned soft, running from the top water dripped. That pillar had sucked the fire heart and breath from his branch. There was more fire in the cave. He knew fire, fire was safe. He walked toward the pillar of water, and the sky color that flickered in the pillar flickered on him, across his furs. And there was she. She was inside the hard water. She stood before him. She lived. He could not see her life, but she lived, something in him said. He gripped the fire-hardened branch. If he needed, he could strike. There was that notion. He would strike. If he needed. The others gathered near. He felt them. She was not like they, but she was. She was smaller, she was smooth, no hair, no fur. She had been walking, but had stopped. One slim leg was ahead of the other. Her hand was ready, about to speak. Her milk places were small, flat. Her woman place was bright, like but not. He sniffed. 
So much of the world could lie, eyes, ears lied, but nose, oh, he smelled himself, the ones who followed, the lingering crackle of the flame, rock and animal, animal and cubs long gone, and the something else, the not ever. He showed fist. She would know that he was he. She did not move. He came close. He breathed on the face of the hard water. She did not move. He touched it. It was cold, like the lake in cold time. Now the hair on his hand tingled. The many-legged things that were not there played on him, burrowed into his hand. Eyes could lie and skin could lie. They ran inside his arm. He wanted to pull away. He did not. They ran to his chest. They ran to his water thing, his man things, to his legs, his face, his mouth, nose, eyes chattered with the sky color. And his mind, the he inside his head, heard. She gave him... A word. There was a word for what he felt. What he felt about her, about it, about the color of the sky in hot time, about the great force that came from everywhere, the force that made life flow through him to the earth, the force that made the bright hot eye and put it in the blue for hunting, and the force that made many-eyed night that protected all things, eyes, eyes is what they were, the hot thing above in the day, the cool, cold one at night, the many small things in the dark sky, eyes, they were eyes like the eyes that sometimes one saw in the back of a cave, or the eyes that evening hid in bushes just above a growl, but the eyes far above, eyes above were different, the force that made the other world of sleep, there was that in her word, too, the force that made the animals whose flesh he ate and who gave their skins for warmth and their bones, guts, and sinews for so many things. Her word was for the force that made the others of his cave and those others not of his cave. He stopped. But had the force made those others... Had this force he felt from she before him made those who lived beyond their hills across the valley, or something tingled him. All over he felt the crawl of the many legs again. Skin could lie, she could not. Was her word only for him and those who sat his fire? Were those outside across the valley by those distant fires? Were those not of this she who stood before him? Well, He'd work that out. But the force, that was him and his world. There was a word for how he felt about that. It didn't take him long. The word was awe. He turned to the others. Those with him knew the word, too, and they were afraid. And so was he. Life. He felt his life. Life was so short. And then, what then? There was dark, there was cold, there was silence. The bumps had ended. She could not see. 
We shall see. We have seen. We are seeing. She touched Philby's lip with the finger invisible. Yes, we shall see, my darkling. He felt her smile. Darkling, he thought. Doesn't she have a slippery tongue on the language? I do. I do. Isn't it lovely? Fossilaron, he said, and breathed deep. And there she was, that smell, that scent of her, her touch, warmth. There it was, the awful, terrible, maddening, lovely, hateful smile of her. Hmm, she said. And outside, in the closeness of the cave, and the cold that was the color of sky, the world watched and began to pray. Damn, if that wasn't fun. Thanks, Skeet. Thanks for watching Iceman, inverting the notions, and thanks Josh Lightsey for suggesting that somebody should write a story to go with that cover. And Tony, what kind of leap of faith is that? Ask a horror writer to make a science fiction story that you're going to publish at Christmas. But thanks for the leap and the trust. Skeet, back to you. Your illustrations, they're a wonder. D. Conniff, you did an amazing job designing the book on one of those Starship Sofa timelines. Stories have their own stories, a life arc. They find their way into the world, suffer various fates, then go on to their eternal rewards. I have no idea where Lord Dickens' declaration goes from here. I hope you've enjoyed it. Maybe later it'll have another incarnation. I hope so. I rather like it, which is not always the case with things I've written. It's longer than expected, has more heft than I wanted, frequently the case with me. I almost never know what I'm writing until I've written it. Even then, it's not until months, years later, that I pick something up and I realize, that's what you meant. Jesus, why didn't you just say so? Well, this had deadline pressure behind it, so it didn't have a chance to sit, become forgotten, then get rediscovered by me as the work of an overindulgent yester-me who missed his own points and had to be edited and focused. So, Lord Dickens is what it is. For now. I found myself having too much fun. That would, maybe, have been corrected in edit. It was to have been pretty straightforward. Cave guys find a a what? No, a who? A, a female, a robot, or some visitor from the future in their midst. Or, here's a thought, are those hairy guys our grandkids living in some bleak time that we failed to prevent? Or is this something else entirely? Well, short deadlines happen, and the cave folk are now pinned to the page, and those hair-suit guys are our long-ago fetchings. More, these dawn-of-man men are at a bend in the human path. They've got fire, and now they've just discovered awe. Discovered that something not ever has come into their lives. Never underestimate the power of something that has never before been. These guys are about to come quickly to learn reverence, worship, adoration, fixation, then dependence. They've already begun with suspicion. From that, 
they'll gather distrust and hatred for those guys across the valley. They're saying to themselves, you got to do something about those bastards over there who don't know the God we've got in the back of our cave. Those sons of bitches will ruin the hunt, the harvest, the sanctity of marriage, or, or, well, you know. Out of them, out of Mary, Mariah, and Gerald's experiment to reset time, We're going to get sharper rocks, edged weapons, Uzis, interstate highways, oil shortages, and soon, soon, soon we get us. There was a process to this. Uh, It was haphazard, quixotic. The creature in ice reminded me of the Maria robot in Fritz Lang's Metropolis, which Cecilia and I had just watched. But Skeet's illustration wasn't a robot, and I wanted to stick closely to what the illustration said. No, she was a woman in some retro-future suit of armor, a time traveler from Buck Rogers' 1930s version of the 25th century. So, if that, I thought, then... Well, it must be a different timeline. The 1930s of the story is different. If so, then something has changed. Something about the past is different. Something... something what? What? I don't know. Let's find out. The way I find things out is I start writing. I wrote, Philby landed thump on the bright disc at... Where? Where is he coming back to? And who's Philby? Well, Philby, he's the guy from the time machine, the red-haired guy, uh, the time traveler's pal, Mr. Ed's second banana, remember? Yep, Philby. So I wrote, Flame Red Philby landed plop on the sunbright diskette. I still didn't know where. Trinity College, say. That's where all my pals were reading history at Cambridge. Salisbury Plain. One of my old Trinity friends, Ed Marsden, lived in Salisbury at where Stonehenge is, so that's where this trinity is. Thus, no Stonehenge. It never got built. Got to work that in. So, Trinity College is on Sarum Hill. And why is he going back in time anyway? Screw why. He's going to when. He, he's not the guy in ice. He's going to... Uh, what? Well, Cecilia and I had just watched a BBC docudrama about Charles Dickens, okay? He's been to Dickens' time. Is that Dickens or Dickens's, by the way? I have to check that. Okay, so why Dickens? Philby's an English professor. Yeah. Yeah, why not send Mike Yatron back in time? Dr. Mike was my Vicky Lit prof during one of my, what, one, two, three, four undergraduate incarnations third i think anyway it went like that then i had to find a place for maria from metropolis it was her picture after all that launched all these words i decided to call her mariah by the way uh, like in shakespeare and sheridan why i like it school for scandal one of my favorite directing gigs in a previous life anyway it all went like that then it became as so many of my stories do a love story Oh, one thing I found along the way. This was a world without war. Why? Don't quite know. But one reason. No God. Or gods. By the way, it's it's hard to cuss, given a godless, afterlife-free world. 
So you're left with body fluids and wishing icky deaths upon your enemies. So, of course, Trinity College became kings. Suddenly, given that, no war, no God, a lot we take for granted never happened in this world. If not A, then not B, that kind of thing. Shakespeare, for one, never happened. Well, not as a great playwright, anyway. That was just a choice. But then I had to ask myself, how can I, as a 20th century American European-focused writer, write without having Shakespeare in my heart and soul? Well, I couldn't. So there it was, the inevitable. See, some things are inevitable. Shakespeare's understanding of the human mind, heart, and spirit. Shakespeare may never have written them, but those words of his, they are inevitable. The words that wrap that understanding of the human and the words of the Rolling Stones, Gilbert and Sullivan, Leonard Cohen, Bob Dylan, their words too. There's others. They all kept oozing in. I let it ooze. The inevitable. Some things are inevitable. Tolstoy. Tolstoy would have understood. So, what was going on? We're living here in a world without war, a world in which the idea of war was given up. Why not? because ours is a world of plenty. If there isn't enough whatever in one place, then some other place can provide it in exchange for whatever else. Why not? Trade, that might be the god of this world. Trade, commerce, the arts, literature. Ah, no wonder Philby is an assistant prof of English literature. They're in charge. Mike Yatron, Doc Ford, Annette Monroe, Mike Talby, Art Sinclair, W. Gordon, Lord Dustin, all those delvers into other people's notions, those notions that buzz around the great inevitables like flies around a goat's butt. They're the ones calling the shots in this world that has at its disposal a machine as vast and as powerful as the beast. So the great science guys of history were artists at the core, Faraday, Kepler, et al., Pope, Dryden, good mathmen and poets first and foremost, not to mention Occam, in our world a monk whose principal claim to fame is that he proposed the idea, keep it simple. Here his wife tosses off the notion in frustration, and he discovers universal gravitation a few centuries before Newton. And by the way, Dr. Reppert, thank you for insisting that we read Canterbury Tales in Chaucer's own Middle English. See, that was the process. Things just cascaded. Here, Charles Ludwig Dodson has married his Alice, and her wonderland is somewhere back in time. Here, Darwin, like Dickens and Wilkie Collins, is a political hack. Oh, by the way, apologies to Dan Simmons. I wanted my Wilkie Collins to have a little more heads-up confrontation with his Dickens. So they meet on a misty field of honor, which meant that I had to work in several asides about Dickensians and Wilkieites at political odds with each other. In Philby's world, the engineering and science geeks, they're, they're the workload boys and girls, grease monkeys and lesser beings. In this world, my side of the campus rules. And Philby and Master Mariah, they are among the inevitables. As I say, this was just too much fun. So, no war, no no God. Well, okay, once rid of those notions, a lot of animosities vanish. After all, which end of the soft-boiled egg do you crack? In this world, no one, probably not even Jonathan Swift, cares to express a care. So, no God go back, take out all the dams, the hells, as I said, try cussing without the idea of God and eternal punishment. It was just too much fun. 
So, our heroes hate each other. Can't have a story set in a university without backstabbing, one-upmanship, and hatred, even as a component of a love story. And there we are. I'll admit, it's not very well thought out. Just a writer having some facile fun with some ideas, without too much substance to them. Science fiction, to me, always seems about plot, about process. We writers of horror deal with moments. Science fiction writers work out implications. We, we only end stories because we must. And Larry, well, you had amazing fun. Lord Dickens' declaration hasn't made me assent, but it has made me laugh in my heart, where, as Scrooge knows, laughter is best felt. And I hope this Dickens is out there working and raising some money for two people I've never met, but whose work I've appreciated over the years. And so, to you, who are listening now, and who may buy this book eventually. My thanks for listening, for buying, for helping to give something back to the Robinsons who've still got some incredible work to bring forth. So here it is. It's Christmas. As I finished this some days ago, the temperature in Chicago was at zero degrees, wind chill, 22 below. As you listen now in your own separate worlds, there's the spirit of the other out and about there. The notion of Christmas, I guess, is about that something not ever that has come into the world to make things better. So, so easy, though, to be cynical at this time of year. But this year, I think I choose not to be. I've worked too hard here to try to build a world without divinity and oddly have come back to something essential about the human spirit goodness. I don't know what to say to you other than be of good cheer, be generous to others. Remember that life really is about other people. And again, as Charlie Dickens observed, God bless us, everyone. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa, a ventilation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one.